Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us hear the word of God written in Romans 9, verses 27 to 29. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Now our text begins with this description of the voice of God's prophet. It says that Isaiah cries out. We might say that Isaiah yelled. And this is such a good description of the work of God's prophets and of his preachers. We are not soft-voiced, and we are not presentable. Our primary concern is not to present ourselves as well-bred, which I spelled B-R-E-A-D, We are not to present ourselves as well-bred, and we are not to fit in nicely. And so if you have ambivalent feelings about me and the other pastors and elders, that's good. You should be slightly ambivalent. I remember for a while I went to Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church with my friend John Peoples preaching, and a frequent theme in John's preaching was One of the perfections of God, one of the attributes of God, is not that he's nice. God is not nice. And so Isaiah cries out, and you noticed I let let it out when I got to the place that Isaiah was crying out. Now, what did he cry out? What was he noisy about? Good way of thinking of it. Well, we remember that everything there in all caps is quoted from the Old Testament. It's the meaning of all caps in the New Testament. It's a quote from the Old Testament. Sometimes it's, it's cut and pasted, different parts of Scripture. Sometimes it's a quotation from the Hebrew. Sometimes it's a quotation from the Greek of, of the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, all right? But here we're looking at the Old Testament. That's the significance of the the all caps. And so everything in all caps is quoted from the Old Testament. And so Isaiah cried out everything there. But if crying out is done not only the better to be heard, but also to motivate men to act, then the most pertinent words of Isaiah when considering his loudness and intensity in this that he said are there in verse 28. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Okay? Now, you know that the word execute is not positive. You know? 
you know if you've ever been an executor. It's not an essentially positive work. I was said to Lucas when he got done making the announcement this morning and came back, I told him that next time he announces the sale of graves, he should say, don't wait until it's too late. (laughs) And so what it's saying here is the Lord will execute his word. Well, what is his word? His word is always repent and believe, all right? The Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. In other words, this is absolutely, without question, going to happen. He will do it, and he'll do it thoroughly, and he'll do it quickly. That's the center, the gravity of this quotation of the Old Testament. What comes before and after is leading up to and following this, and that's the certainty of God's judgment. Now, do you remember what God's prophet, John the Baptist, said? We read in Matthew 3, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What did he preach? It says, saying, so this is what he preached, quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, and he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so what makes the paths of God straight, what makes the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, what makes us ready for it, is repentance. It's repentance. It's easy for us to dissect the book of Romans in such a way that we, we keep our eyes on the meta-narrative. And we're following the logic, the flow, the arguments being made. I keep each week saying to you now, he's still dealing with the objections against God's choice. And so we're all fixated on the choice and election and our doctrinal commitments and all this. But let us remember that the word of God does an unbelievable amount of things, more even than a mother of 10 children. And what this is doing for us is reminding us of the coming judgment of God. It's not just there for us to say, now you understand the Apostle Paul is doing this and this and this and this, and we're on our way to there. But he's also calling us to repentance, warning us that God's judgment is going to come. And it will be absolutely inescapable, thorough, and quick. Okay? For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And therefore, repent. But there's something else that God's prophets, Isaiah, and quoting him, the Apostle Paul, are saying here, and it has to do with God's fairness. Are we tired of this yet? Are you tired of the Apostle Paul defending God's fairness? And if he had to defend God's fairness so often with the citizens in Rome... (laughs) who didn't have a highly evolved sense of fairness when Nero was burning Christians on poles to light the streets at night. 
you know, imagine, <laughs> I mean, imagine bringing that into our world and all the social justice warriors, what would they do with that? And so they didn't have a highly evolved sense of fairness, and yet we're seeing the Apostle Paul have to deal with this again and again and again and again and again. And he's still dealing with it. And so if you don't think you need God's fairness defended, you're not fully in touch with the political ideologies and philosophies that have come to own you and your brain. We're always accusing God of not being fair. That's who you are and that's who I am, okay? And so he continues in this theme. We remember that the Apostle Paul has been speaking of the relative absence of God's covenant people, the Jews, and the Christian church. And at the same time, the church is filling up with Gentiles. So the Jews inherited all the promises. And they're absent. It's like a glaring absence. Meanwhile, the Gentiles are coming in. Sometimes in talking to pastors that have conflict in their church, one of the first questions I'll ask is, well, how many years have you been there? And I know the answer before they tell me. The answer is always somewhere between four and six years. Why do people try to get rid of a pastor in that little gap, four to six years? Well, the answer is that at four to six years, generally speaking, there will be as many people in the church who have come because you're there and are bonded to you as the old timers were before you got there. And so during four to six years, all of a sudden the seesaw is perfectly balanced and the old timers know what's coming. (laughs) You know, they know pretty soon the loyalty to the pastor and they haven't really appreciated the pastor who's preaching to them to repent. And it's like, They thought they had that straight with the search committee, you know? And so they decide now's the time for all good men to come to the aid of the old timers. One of my friends of a very wealthy suburb in in Minneapolis called Minnetonka uh, had a, a tragic stillbirth that they knew was going to happen. Um... And it was in that gap, and it was precisely upon the death of the child that the people decided that was the time to mount their campaign and get rid of him. And oh, did it hurt him and his wife. And you know, that man, they moved not too many years later, and ever since then, he was in, he was, uh, he was, he was, he was one of my two best friends in seminary. And as I think about it, he Well, he didn't completely leave the ministry, but he never worked as a full-time pastor after moving out west. And so you can imagine the tension in the church in Rome and Jerusalem and Galatia that you have all the good Christians missing. They haven't made through the transition of faith in Christ, the scandal of the cross, okay? And meanwhile, the dirty Gentiles are there. And it was really a pill to swallow. And so the Apostle Paul is dealing with the scandal of the fact that the Jews 
are not there and the Gentiles are. Now, there were Jews there, but the Jews who were there were some of the most offended people. Because they're looking around, they say, where are the rest of the old timers? And there aren't any there. You know, they're, they're pretty much alone, right? And so the accusation comes, well, God isn't keeping his word. Now, what word is it that God isn't keeping? Well, we looked at that in previous weeks. But in verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant will be saved. And do you remember what God promised the patriarch Abraham? Here's his promise from Genesis 22. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, what? I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. So here he quotes Isaiah many centuries later and many centuries before the apostle Paul. He quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. Well, it's happened. And it hadn't happened just then. It had happened, do you remember back, excuse me, in Egypt? You remember what Pharaoh said. Then came a Pharaoh, a king who knew not Joseph. So he'd forgotten about the beginning, right? And we read in Exodus 1, it says, uh, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty. The land was filled with them. <laughs> it's redundant. Listen. The angel of the Lord called, excuse me, the sons of Israel were what? Were what? Fruitful and increase greatly, fruitful, increase greatly, and multiplied. Fruitful, increase greatly, multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. <laughs> you got the point? Okay. God said he would bless Abraham by making his descendants like the sand of the sea, and so they ba-bam, 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 ba-bam. Isn't it delightful to realize that God's people were fruitful during COVID? While they lament the 300,000 people who will not be born because of COVID, what we learn is, I just found out about another pregnancy. I ain't going to tell you who it is. (laughs) Christians are made fruitful by God. Christians make love. Why? Well, it's not because we're lovable. But God works in us in such a way that we want to love one another. And don't think dirty thoughts about this. It's beautiful. Okay? Don't think dirty thoughts. So yesterday... We had one more day of the beauty of marriage in our home. It was so sweet. Mary Lee needed help technologically. And I am the man. And so we just went from bliss to glory and back to bliss. 
And fortunately, there was a man named Lucas Weeks who was willing to insert himself as the grease between bliss and bliss. <laughs> now listen, if you don't know this, I'm generally not the easiest person in the world to get along with, and the, the, the worst spot in our marriage is helping my wife technologically. It's, it's like, please, just shoot me. And so I was short, and I think maybe that's a euphemism. <laughs> I think maybe I was actually quite nasty and impatient, and it went on all day. It involved Amazon. It involved a, uh, Verizon. It involved John Crump. It involved <laughs> Lucas Weeks. It involved Synchrony Bank. It involved other banks. It involved Federal Express. It involved everything that I hate dealing with. It involved an extremely long customer service call with two people from India. <laughs> one of whom at one point I said, I'm sorry, but I don't understand your English. Would you please speak so I can understand you? Now that was nice compared to my attitude to my wife. And you all know this about me. And so at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, lover. Oh, I'm sorry. And so then this morning, I don't normally do this, but on the way to church, I went into the bedroom. She leaves my bedroom or our bedroom because I'm making noise and it's extremely early. So she sleeps. So I go in the bedroom and I kiss her and I say, I love you. And then on the way to church or when I got here, I get this text and there's a heart on it. Well, you know, Mary Lee is not sentimental. Mary Lee's not an emoji kind of cotton candy kind of personality. She's half vinegar and half sugar. But she sent me a heart after yesterday. Now think about this. What did I think when I got the heart? Well, what I thought was, how does God work this out? How does God cause somebody who's been married 40 years to a crank love him? All right. This is God's work. God opens the womb and closes it. God makes a husband love his wife when she is a she-coon, which many of you women are. And a husband who's just a nasty pill. And yet God's people are fruitful and multiply. Do we deserve it? No, we don't. Do we always welcome it? No, we don't. And so this is the promise. The promise isn't about us. The promise is that God will open the womb. He'll make them great, he'll make them strong, he'll multiply them, he'll make them bear fruit. And this is the history of the Jews, and they knew it well. They knew precisely what it was that the Hebrews thought of them. That the Hebrews were saying, oh my goodness, look at these Hebrews, I mean the Egyptians. Look at these Hebrews, they're multiplying, and when the enemies come to fight with us, they'll join their side. And so the Bible tells us, um, 
Excuse me a second. The Bible tells us that the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And now a new king arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people, the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they'll also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart for the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. And then it says, verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Now listen, this is part of the text of Scripture. This is in Isaiah. It's promised in Genesis. The Apostle Paul quotes it here. And how is it that today we have lost any sense of this being the heritage of God's people? We have children. And it's an act of love. And God has made us love. And it's an act of faithfulness. And God will give us what we need to have children. And let me tell you, we need a lot. Right? Parents, we need a lot. None of us are ever ready to be fathers and mothers, right? But God's done it, and God will give us what we need. Okay? All right, Chris? All right. All right, Titus. All right. I got a text of your wedding when I was out of town (laughs) from my wife. So, this is our condition, and I want you to pay attention to the fact that God's people are still fruitful, we still multiply, and we still scare the dickens out of the pagans. And you can't escape it. The only way you can escape it is to become an evangelical. And then you'll only have two children. And then the opprobrium will not be owned by you. But I mean, what a boring life. I mean, really, being an evangelical is so boring. Go to Wheaton. I grew up there. It's so boring. Life is so exciting here. We found out another pregnancy today. And this pregnancy really is insane. Whoever, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Now you'll all be wondering who, and I I can't tell you. But let me tell you, huh? Yeah, it's number 10, if that helps you. (laughs) Here's the negative part. It is the remnant that will be saved. Now you say, well, that's not negative. That's God's salvation. I say, yeah, it is God's salvation. But ask yourself this question. So Mary Lee and I used to go into the fabric store all the time, all right, because she sewed. And she'd go get a bolt of cloth, and she'd take it to the table, and the clerk would measure out the material she wanted, the number of yards she wanted, and cut it off, put it in a bag, and we'd have our, our fabric, okay? And then the clerk would take the bolt of fabric back to the display case and set it up right, you know, and tuck it in with everything else, right? What I liked at the fabric store was a remnant table. 
because the remnant tail was cheap fabric. Now, why is it cheap? Well, if Mary Lee had bought some of the last few yards of that material on that bolt, all of a sudden the rest of that fabric becomes a remnant. And a remnant is that pitiful little part that's left over that's not worth paying the same amount for. Because it's just a remnant. It's the leftovers. How many of you like to eat leftovers? Yeah, all you moralists. (laughs) I can't stand leftovers. They're beneath me. My eminence. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it's the remnant that will be saved. Now this might motivate us to repent and to believe in Jesus. Right? When we hear that it's the remnant that will be saved, depth of mercy can there be. Mercy still reserved for me. But let's not take this for granted. It does not motivate to repent and believe in Jesus those who do not want to be saved. Can we acknowledge this? Can we acknowledge that there are many across history, the majority of men and women have not wanted to be saved? In my experience, the evangelism of evangelicalism in the 20th century was a great attempt to avoid all of the negative upon which the gospel is built. And specifically, although I packed, I guess thousands of the evangelism explosion book by Kennedy when I was working in the shipping department at at Tyndale House. That thing sold like hotcakes. But do you remember the first question that Evangelism Explosion taught you to ask when you went door to door? The first question was, why should I allow you, if God were to say to you, why should I allow you into my heaven, how would you answer? And of course, the whole question is built on the presumption that the person you're talking to wants to go to heaven. Is it really true that most people want to be saved and simply don't know how to be? Well, there are them, and that should always give you faith and boldness to speak of God's mercy. But the reason you don't do it is because most people don't want God's mercy, and you mostly don't want to be rejected. It doesn't matter how you present it to them, Most people do not have a desire to acknowledge their sin. Most people don't have a desire to acknowledge the holiness of God. Most people do not have the ability to be humble and to come to God. It's fascinating 
If you keep in mind the flow of Romans, do you know where we're about to go? When we get done discussing election and the fairness of God, what do we go to then? Then we go into the scandal of the gospel. And what is the scandal of the gospel? The scandal is that you have to be the recipient of God's holiness. And you can't bring none of your own. And that was the cornerstone upon which God's people were shattered. They would not come to God with empty hands. They would come to God with their righteousness. That's where we're headed. And so when he says here that the remnant will be saved, and we're reading this, and we just sort of bleep, 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 bleep over it. You know what I'm saying? And the remnant will be saved. Stop and ask yourself, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be saved? It's helpful for me in this connection to remember Jesus so often in his ministry, but especially the poignant moment at the pool of Bethesda, remember? And he shows up and this dude can't walk. And Jesus looks at him, and do you remember what he asks him? Remember what Jesus asked the guy there by the pool? Any kids? Huh? He says, do you want to be healed? Doesn't it seem like a ridiculous question from the Messiah? You know, do I want to be healed? What do you think I'm doing here? You know, of course I want to be healed, but that's not what the guy says. Do you remember what he says? Come on, you guys, you know your Bible's better than this. Don't be bashful. Come on. What does he say? Come on, lower yourself. You don't know. You don't know your Bibles. What he says is, when the angel comes down and stirs the water, he says, I I don't have the ability to get there. In other words, I can't move, and so other people always get there before I do, and so they're healed, and I'm not. (sighs) What a wonderful statement to Jesus. Do you want to be healed? Would you please, all of you, look around in this world and see that we have a world filled with victims? We have people victims because of the skin color. We have people victims because of some physical challenge, handicap. We have people who are victims because of what hemisphere they were born into. We have people who are victims because of which side of Bloomington, the east or west, they were born on. We have people who are victims because they're not coordinated, because they're seven foot four and can't play basketball. And you ask yourself, do those victims want to be healed? I 
Listen, we have to recognize that victimhood is a sweet spot because it gets you money, disability, free opioids, the ability to guilt trip every white man, make excuses for your failures. Come on. Do you think any victims in America today want to be healed? I mean, really. I've often told people who live in a marriage that's difficult that wives who complain about their husband being an alcoholic, their whole life, if their husband ever repents and stops drinking, the likelihood is they will divorce him. And why is that? Well, because that wife... Her whole life revolves around the precious commodity of victimhood. And so listen, do not think that the reason you should witness to your lost loved friends and neighbors and family members is because they're just waiting to be saved. They're not. Unless one of them is depth of mercy, can there be mercy that is reserved for me? And you'll hit on that one, and the joy will be uncontainable. Because you'll see that the Holy Spirit preceded and enveloped and will follow up your work. And that you're not working in your own strength, that you're working in the call and election of God. And it is absolutely impossible to resist the hound of heaven. He will claim those who belong to him. And so you'll see yourself going to the most unlikely people. Gentiles! (laughs) You know? Crystal meth salesmen, you know, Westsiders, and they'll believe. Okay. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, this is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Judgment, God's judgment is almost here. It will come certainly, thoroughly, and quickly. Prepare to meet your God. Then another quotation from Isaiah the prophet. This one from Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9. As the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew that the Apostle Paul had, as it reads, verse 29, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Okay, so remember how I mentioned a few weeks ago that pastors don't want to point out errors in a translation if it causes you to not believe that the English Bible you're holding in your hands is the very word of God. 
But unfortunately, we live in a day when all the Bibles that are good are being pulled from production. It looks like the NASB that we have been using for 20-some years is going to be pulled from production. What they're replacing it with appears to be bad in the way all modern Bibles are bad, which is they're politically correct. So they change God's words. And so I'm willing to point out the places where the translation is bad because I think it's going to force all of you to be grown-ups and to realize that translators often do things because of their desire to be like, their desire to be presentable. It's, it's what a professor at Princeton, who is known to be one of the best translators, writes about in his book, where he says translators are aspirational when they translate scripture. They want their peers to see the words they've produced and not to be offended by them, but to think they're sophisticated. And so they try to produce a text that's sophisticated. But the fact is, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament are sophisticated. Peter Whitehart didn't write them. Okay? And this is a perfect place to make this point to you so that you're ready if we have to choose a Bible other than the NSB. Okay? And what is actually in the text here, what your translation says is, unless the word of Sabbath had left to us a what? Now, if you ask a little kid what is posterity, he might blush and you say, no, come on, tell me. He might go, you're posterior, right? I mean, it would be a reasonable mistake to make, right? What on earth is posterity? It's a highfalutin word. We know that. I mean, it sounds dignified. I would like, when I die, to have a posterity. Now, do you know what the actual Greek word is? The actual Greek word in the Septuagint is the word sperma. Now, I ask you, in all the uses of the English word that comes from that word, namely sperm, in all the uses of the word sperm in English that you've ever run into, have you ever thought to yourself, oh, posterity? (laughs) No, (laughs) you know, it's cleaned up. It's... Not offensive. It's not guttural. It's not holistic. It's not organic. It's not Mother Earth, cosmic karma, yin-yang kind of territory. It's not braided armpits. (laughs) That's the word. And it's intended to make us think of what? It's intended to make us think of what the male contributes to the female, to make her fruitful. And so all through the Old Testament, you will find the word descendant in the NASB every single time. If you look down at the bottom of the page, the footnote will say literally, seed. And so what the Bible says here, not our translators, but what the Bible says here is 
unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a seed, (laughs) a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now, you know that that word here, seed, is a placeholder for the word remnant, right? Can you tell that it's reiterating the same theme? It's the remnant, it's the seed. But seed has a different meaning than remnant, right? Except if you stop and think that seed is what's left over from the pile of grain that you eat. Seed is what's left over. You only need a few seeds next spring. And so the the, the meaning of fewness is carried through. And so once again, he is making the point that it's small and few there be that find it and narrow and taking up your cross. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now listen. Why is there such a hatred for the word Sodom? Why are we killing it? You might say we're killing it because we have more delicate ways of speaking about men with men. But I don't think that's the reason we're killing it. I think we're killing it because God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is horribly embarrassing to us. It adds to the embarrassment that it was for the sin of men being with men and trying to rape other men, which is about the most inhospitable thing you can do. Let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that God wiped out those cities? I mean, honestly, do you really believe that? You say you do. But how do you explain to a a friend who's a pagan that that is the God you love? And that that God is love. Let me tell you, if you go along with race critical theory, critical race theory, if you go along with all the entitlement, all the victimhood, all the patronization of blacks and every, every minority, if you go along with thinking that everybody is a victim, you don't believe that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't believe it. Do you know that the Bible tells us that God wiped them out? And do you know what the final statement it is? It's just, it's almost, you almost miss it in the text of Scripture. Here's the end. So it's Genesis 19, 23 to 25. This is the account, the whole account. 
It says the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. And is that the end of the text? Anybody know? It's not the end. It then adds this parenthetical sort of observation and what grew on the ground. It's like, you know, you're gasping over what's been said and what grew on the ground. Now, that is history. David McAuliffe has never written history. Thucydides never wrote history. What's the dude that makes all the historical G-jaws that everybody loves? Ken Burns. Ken Burns has never done history. History is only done in scripture in a way that is true. And if you've ever tried to write history, you know it's difficult to get it true, (laughs) you know? But this is true. This is true. God destroyed them, including what grew on the ground, okay? Now, if you believe that that happened, then here is what Paul, quoting Isaiah, is saying to us, okay? Let's hear it again. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. I think we should uh, have this as a confession of faith at the beginning of every worship service. And I think we should make it the first person singular. Unless the Lord, I, I. Listen. One of the things that I always carry on my heart is the children of these church, this church. We all carry them. All of us do. They're all of our children. And those of you who are reaching teenage years or have reached them are aware of your sin in a way that you've never been aware of it before. And it is awful. And it's easy in teenage years to despair. And to just think, it's hopeless. I can't be holy. I can't be righteous. And do you realize that that's precisely what Isaiah and Paul are saying here? What they're saying is, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. In other words, it is the Lord that gives you the ability to repent and repent and repent and believe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and believe and believe and believe and believe and believe. Now, I'm not trying to get you to turn it into a calisthenic intellectually, but I want you to get more and more to the point where You sing the song Mrs. Bowles sang to us, which is depths of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? 
And then you recount your sins as the song does. Okay, you say, I have, I have crucified him. I have done this. I have done that. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? And then you remember this statement of scripture, unless the Lord had snatched a remnant, the seeds, we would have been consumed. Listen, there is not one person, you who are in your teenage years, there is not one person in your home, not one, not your mother, not your brother, not your sister, nor your grandma, not one, who by all rights should not be consumed like Sodom and Gomorrah, not one. And you should be consumed too. That's the gospel. And so run to God. Run to God. I don't remember whether it was Robert Haldane or Calvin in his comments on this section. He stops and he says something like, you realize that none of the angels that fell will ever receive God's mercy. Meditate on that. God doesn't owe any of us to be saved. But somehow, from his love, the Father sent the Son. And so run to him. Those of you who nobody would predict would run, you run fastest. Get ahead of everybody because you'll be such an inspiration to everybody behind you. I'm thinking of a certain family in this church right now. And what an incredible encouragement it's been to me. To see that mother lead her children to the kingdom of God. And the most unlikeliest thing is that those children have come. I would say that the thing that's weird about us as a church is how many unlikely people are pursuing the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's doing. It is not your doing. It's not my doing. It's not the elder's doing. He has decided that he's going to reserve to himself a seed, a remnant. You were lying there on the cut rate table. <laughs> you know, he ain't worth much. You're worth judgment. And that is the exhibit that we are as a church here. Okay? Just like the Corinthians, not many wise not in the world's eyes, not many strong, not many rich. God chose the foolish things. Our Father, we pray that you will glorify yourself in us by our repentance and faith. And Father, by our fruitfulness. Give us the souls of our children, the children of this church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.